please turn with me in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes. We're starting the book of Ecclesiastes this morning. So Psalms is right in the middle of your Bible, and then you have Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. If you don't own a Bible, we've got Bibles for you at the doors. Uh, they're, they're sitting on the tables. Feel free to take one as our, our gift to you. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to study your word this morning, to, to begin a new book of the Bible. We thank you, Jesus, that you are the living water. You're the bread of life. It's so easy for us to look for meaning outside of you. And may you really use your word in our lives to cause us to, to look to you. So would you please pour out your spirit upon us? Would you teach us? Would you instruct us? In Jesus' name, amen. What do you think is one of the greatest ways uh, to learn? If you were going to look back on your life and go, you know, these are some things that I've really learned. It's usually through experience, isn't it? It's by really getting in there and experiencing it for yourself that we learn. But I also want to take it a step further. I think it's not only experience, but it's also failure, isn't it? Like, unfortunately, when you fail at something, you really tend to learn it. I think about uh, learning to snowboard. And one of the only ways to learn to snowboard is to wipe out. You're, you're not going to really learn until you wipe out several times. And I learned to, to snowboard as an, an adult. Uh, imagine me on a snowboard. It's not very pretty uh, to this day. I don't think I've ever been so sore as my first day of snowboarding. Like, my butt was incredibly sore, right? It comes through, comes through failure. You think about if you're exercising and you're, you're working out and how do you learn to do those exercises properly? Usually by doing them wrong and you get a, a bit of an injury and you're like, I'm not going to do that again. The book of Ecclesiastes is written in that manner. Solomon, who is the author, he's going to show us what we need to be doing by giving us an example of what not to do. He's going to show us where real meaning is, real satisfaction is, by showing us how so many things in this world are empty. This can be a very confusing book because it doesn't make sense until the last two verses. You have to read the book with the end in view. Solomon's going to go through and he's going to show us under the sun how this is vanity. And this is emptiness. And this is an endless pursuit. The book ends by saying this is the conclusion of the whole matter is to fear God and to keep his commandments. This is where real meaning is found is inside of a relationship with the Lord. I think this is an incredible way to teach. It's an incredible way for, for us to understand where true meaning is found and what we're really supposed to do by an example of what we're not supposed to do. Also, this is a perfect book for our culture. We are on a rat race. We're running ourselves to the ragged edge, and we're looking for fulfillment. We're looking for satisfaction. We're thinking, if, if I can just get this degree and have this education, then I'm going to be, be satisfied. If I can have this job and make this amount of money or have this amount of money in the bank or this relationship... If I get this relationship, then I'm going to be, going to be satisfied and everything's going to be right uh, in, in my life. If I could only retire, then, then I'll be satisfied. But if we're not looking to a relationship with the Lord, even if we're allowed to accomplish some of those things, we find ourselves incredibly empty. 
and we echo a lot of the same things that Solomon is experiencing. The word Ecclesiastes, what it means is the leader of the assembly. The idea comes from the word preacher, and Solomon introduces himself as the preacher or the leader of the assembly. There's some parallel phrases that we're going to see throughout the book. Chasing the wind, no advantage, nothing gained under the sun. Solomon's really examining a perspective of life under, under the sun, apart from a relationship with God until the very end, and we fix our eyes above the sun uh, to God. So here's the prayer through this study, is that we would experience the abundant life that Jesus Christ came to give us. That we would stop looking to the things of this world to satisfy and look to our relationship with the Lord. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Solomon is the king, but he introduces himself as the preacher. He likes to share words of wisdom. The book of Proverbs is Solomon's writings. How do we know that this is Solomon? Because the son of David, king in Jerusalem, there was only one of Solomon's, or excuse me, David's sons that were king, and that was Solomon. Solomon has an interesting story. He has a, an interesting upbringing. First, mom and dad, David and Bathsheba. Bathsheba, of course, was David's wife by the means of adultery. He commits adultery with Bathsheba, murders Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, tries to cover his tracks. Bathsheba is pregnant. They lose that child. But then they go on in their relationship and God blesses them with Solomon. In 2 Samuel 12, 24 and 25, it says this, Then David comforted Bathsheba, his wife, and went into her and lay with her. So she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. Now the Lord loved him, speaking of Solomon. And he sent word by the hand of Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. Solomon means God is peace. Jedidiah means beloved of God. God did not give up on David and Bathsheba. And as David repented of his sins, God blessed the relationship going forward of David and Bathsheba, blesses them with Solomon. So he grew up knowing, knowing that he was loved by God. Has two names, Solomon and Jedidiah. God is peace and beloved of the Lord. What do you think it was like to, to grow up as, as David's son? Quite the shadow to, to be in. David wanted to build the temple, but God said no. So he prepared everything so that Solomon could build the temple. What was the difference between David and Solomon? David had great sin struggles in times of rebellion against God, but David never stopped worshiping the Lord. He never struggled with idolatry. He never, we never see David bowing down and worshiping a false god. Solomon, even though he knew wisdom and shared wisdom and gave to us the book of Proverbs, and probably some of the most practical and powerful instruction on avoiding sexual sin, he found himself in sexual sin. He chose to have 700 wives and 300 concubines. Think about that for a moment. A thousand wives. There's no way that he even knew all their names. I mean, that's more names than you can cognitively be able to retain. 
And that was a sinful choice on, on his part. And as he marries these, these wives, they were from other countries that served false gods. And the scripture tells us that his wives turned his heart to idolatry. He went down this road of, of idolatry. And that's the difference between David and Solomon. We don't know if Solomon ever repented for sure. The end of his, his life leads us in idolatry in the Chronicles and in, in the Kings. We hope that Ecclesiastes is his memoirs of getting back right with God. But what we're going to read in Ecclesiastes is Solomon's personal experience of trying to find meaning outside of a relationship with God. And we too easily get our eyes off the Lord and start to look to the things of this world to, to satisfy us. Verse 2, vanities of vanities, says the preacher. Vanities of vanities, all is vanities. Get familiar with this phrase. We're going to read it 30 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. Vanity of vanities. In the Hebrew, this word vanity, uh, it literally means breeze, breath, or vapor. The idea is the lack of, of substance. This is the big idea. This is the conclusion that Solomon comes to that apart from Christ, all is meaningless. All is, is vanity. I'm looking to this possession. I'm looking to this person or this, this pleasure to bring me satisfaction and to bring me fulfillment and contentment, but I'm not primarily looking to my relationship with the Lord. Then the end result is, is vanity. The, the end result is that it is, is meaningless. But do we believe this, church? This morning, do we really believe this? Even though our experience has given testimony to it, are we convinced that that job really can't fulfill the longing inside of my heart? That, that relationship can't fulfill that longing in, inside of my heart? That, that house, that, that car, that, that vacation, right? Our culture is constantly giving us this, this message that, we can be fulfilled through relationships. You watch the movies, and a lot of times it's a romantic comedy. They go something like this. This gal meets this guy at the beginning of the movie, and it seems to be that he's going to be the one. But the deeper that you get into the movie, it turns out he's kind of a jerk. But then there was a guy kind of in the background, and, and he turns out to be Mr. Right, doesn't he? And you're feeling this tension, like, are they going to get together? Is the relationship going to make it? And, and, and finally, at the very end, the relationship makes it. And the last idea that you're left with in the movie is, man, it's just going to be great for both of them for the rest of their lives. I mean, she has finally met Mr. Right that can, can satisfy her. Now, now, is that reality? Is marriage a blessing? Absolutely. Are, are relationships a blessing? Absolutely. But is your spouse going to be Jesus for you? You know? It's probably a rude awakening to a lot of young girls who've watched Disney movies their whole life to realize, my husband's a sinner. You know? He, he, can't, he can't satisfy me. Ultimately, only the Lord can satisfy. And when our hearts and minds are fixed upon Jesus, then we can enjoy marriage the way that God intended with a, a proper expectation. I know for me, I at a young age desired to, to be a pastor. And inside of the movement of churches that we're affiliated with, there's one primary conference. And I was 
familiar with this pastor's conference uh, growing up and looked up to a lot of the pastors that would teach at, at this conference and thought, man, it'd be great to be able to go to this conference. You couldn't go to the conference unless you, you were a pastor. And wow, it would be great if someday I could teach at, at this conference. God allowed me to, to teach at that conference many years ago. Now, granted, I only got to do devotions and nobody comes to devotions, but... That didn't, that didn't matter in, in my mind, you know, I was, I was behind the, the, this pulpit. And what I found the night and the day that I taught at that conference is I was a, incredibly empty because I had propped up that accomplishment. I had thought if, if I could get to that place and have, have that opportunity that it would bring fulfillment in, in my life. And I was looking to that instead of the relationship with the Lord, and I could echo this, vanity of vanities. I think you could sing this as well, that this has been vanity in my life because it's apart from a relationship with Christ. In verse three, what profit has a man from all of his labor in which he toils under the sun? The phrase under the sun is used 25 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. He's really analyzing a a perspective of of life apart from an eternal perspective, apart from a relationship with God. We ask this question a lot of times, what is the profit for all of my labor under the sun? What benefit has there been from all of the hard work? I tend to mow my lawn on Mondays. It's my day off. I'll feel pretty good about it when I get done mowing the lawn but then pretty quickly, it needs it again, right? And there's more weeds than there were the week before. And it's this endless pursuit. You put in a a hard day's work, and guess what? You gotta do it again the next day. You do the laundry, the laundry is eternal this side of heaven, right? (laughs) It just finds a way to fill up once again, and then you've gotta do it again. The grocery store, that... Eat the food and you're back at the grocery store. You're cooking and, and you're cooking again. There's this endless toil in our homes and in our jobs. And we stop and we wonder, is, is there any profit to this? Am, am I really gaining anything because, because of this? And of course, Christ infuses meaning into our work. And the smallest thing that we do in his name glorifies the Lord and, and he notices. But if we lose sight of Christ, What profit really is there to all of our labor that is under the sun? In this next section, Solomon looks at cycles or patterns that never end. They just, they continue. In verse four, one generation passes away and another generation comes, but the earth abides forever. This is something that I get to see as a pastor and it's a privilege to be this close to life and death. Sometimes in the course of pastoring, I will get a phone call that someone in our church has passed away, and within minutes, I'll also get another phone call or text that a baby's been born. One generation has passed away, and another generation has been been born. There's been times where I've done a funeral and a wedding in the same day. That's a pretty odd experience to go from someone's ending life to someone stepping out in, in marriage with the hopes that someday God's going to give them children. At the hospital, right now this morning, there's babies that are being born. 
A new generation is, is coming onto the scene, but there's also people passing away right, right at the same time. And this has been going on since the beginning of time. Solomon experiences this as well. And then in verse 5, the sun also rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it arose. This 24-hour cycle, the sameness that keeps occurring. Maybe you just kill it one day at work. It's a great day at work. You get a a lot of stuff done. You are productive in every aspect of your life. Well, guess what? The sun is racing for that day to end and for a new day to begin, and you get to do it all over again and probably aren't as productive the the next day. Verse 6, the wind goes towards the south and turns around to the north The wind whirls about continually and comes again on its circuit. So this continual pattern of the wind. This cycle in nature that is never ending. Verse 7, this is very descriptive. And all the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place from which the rivers have come, there they return again. Does the ocean ever have enough water? Is the ocean ever satisfied? Is the ocean ever done with its toil? The water comes into the ocean and then this process of evaporation forms the clouds and the clouds then pour out rain into the rivers and it's this endless continual cycle that is repeating over and over again and this leads Solomon to his conclusion. He says, all things are full of labor. Man cannot express it. You can just let out a sigh. Oh, man. Maybe, you know, you were having a, a good day until you came to church to study the book of Ecclesiastes, right? I think there's just times where we innately, acutely, we feel this. We go, oh man, there's just, everywhere I go, there's, there's labor. It's so hard. And I can't, can't even express how overwhelmed I'm filled with, with all of the work. A lot of times we're trying to engineer a way out of the work. You know, maybe if, I got this house that didn't have any yard work or any maintenance or, or maybe if I could do this a little bit differently in my job, I wouldn't have any work. Or, or maybe in my family, if we changed a few things here or there, we wouldn't have to put in any work relationally. Or if I could retire, then there wouldn't be any work. But church, is work ever going to go away this side of, of heaven? Even if a person's able to retire, does that mean that there's no work? No, no, this is a a part of this cycle. And that's what Solomon's expressing here. There's this cycle that's happening in nature, and there's this cycle that's happening in my my life of labor. The end of verse 8 is a life-saving lesson. It will save us hardship. The eye is not satisfied with seeing nor the ear filled with hearing. Or write this down. Apart from Christ, the eye and the ear are never satisfied. Take it from a man who knows Solomon. He was seeing the best things that the world had to offer in his position as the king of Jerusalem. The scripture tells us he had so much gold that silver was like stones in his kingdom. Can you imagine? Oh, it's just some silver. No big deal. He built the nicest palaces, the nicest gardens. 
And what his conclusion is, is similar to the ocean never being satisfied. Apart from Christ, the eye is never satisfied. The ear is, is never satisfied. Does your home ever look good enough? Do you ever look at your house and go, oh, it's just perfect. Right? It's just right. It's always, well, this wall could be painted, or the kitchen could be a little bit different, or this room could be uh, remodeled, right? Do you ever look at the car and you just go, oh man, this, I'm so satisfied with, with this car. Even with our bodies. In our culture, we really analyze our bodies and idolize our bodies, and we look at our bodies and and very rarely do we go, oh, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. <laughs> Our eye always goes, I, I don't appreciate this about myself. I wish that this were a little bit different or that were a little bit different. You, you've got four or five things that you're thinking about right now, right? The ear, Solomon has heard a lot of great music as, as the king, but it could always be better. Musicians... As they write music and you're listening to it with them and you're blown away about how good this song is and inevitably they tell you how it could be better. We're always trying to improve sound quality. Can I get an amen from the 8-track generation? Right? <laughs> the cassette generation? The, the CD generation, right? My kids know none of those things. We haven't even began to talk about vinyl records. <laughs> but sound quality has gotten better, but I tell you, they're not satisfied. It's going to continue to have to get better from generation to generation. How is this a, a life-saving lesson? And this is why. Because Satan and our flesh are going to attack us through the lust of the eyes. Where we're going to see things, and in, in our flesh, apart from Christ, we're going to say, I've got to have that. If I'm going to have meaning, if I'm going to be satisfied, I have to have that. And for us to underline and to remember and have this tucked into our hearts, no, that's not true. That, that, that's my flesh. That's a lie from Satan. That, that's a lie from my own sinful heart. And once I have that, I'm not going to be satisfied. I am going to long for and desire something else in my life. Paul wrote this, and he said, godliness with contentment is great gain. He also wrote that he had to learn to be content. We're not naturally content. This is something that we learn in Christ. In Philippians 4, where Paul writes this, he then says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Christ was the answer. Christ was the source to be able to get out of this rat race of the lust of the eyes, the lust of our ears, longing for more. Jesus told us in Hebrews 13, he says, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you. So let your lifestyle be without covetousness. We can go through our lives really looking to Christ to satisfy us instead of what we see. Why do people engage in sexual sin? Because the lust of the eyes is saying, you have to have this pleasure right now. And if you don't have this pleasure right now, you're not going to be satisfied. And wise is the woman, wise is the man that says, no, that that's not true. 
I'm lusting with my eyes right now, and it's only a, a relationship with Christ that can, can satisfy and bring fulfillment. I think in a lot of ways, our phones are showing us our endless pursuit of satisfaction through the lust of our eyes. We can get on our phones and look for anything that we're longing. Oh man, I would really like to have this car. Let me, let me check it out, right? I would really like to have this house and Zillow and Redfin are more than willing to accommodate us as we look for, for hours on all these, all these things. Pinterest, Pinterest, what's that all about? Man, it's the eye longing, longing for more. And we haven't even gone out to shop. We've just spent all of this time on our phones. And so here are these conflicting messages. The message of contentment that comes through Christ or this message that our eyes and our ears are, are giving to us. There's a section on I-25 when you're driving back from Denver or to Denver, just over Monument Hill, just north of, of Monument Hill, where the radio stations are between two stations. And if you leave it on your station that, that you like, for about a half a mile or a mile, you're going to get two stations at the same time. And this happened to me yesterday when I was driving back uh, from Denver. Now, don't crucify me, but I listen to NPR news. Right? You can find a new church if you want to. But. So here I am listening to, to NPR news, and the Denver station is talking about First Amendment rights. So I'm listening to that, and then it starts to get a little staticky. But then here comes the, the, Den, the Colorado Springs NPR station, and it's a cooking episode on how to make sure that you're not beating your eggs too much <laughs> for this particular recipe. For, for, so for those few moments, that mile, mile and a half, there's all this static, and then I'm getting two, two messages. And I thought right in that moment, I'm like, that is my brain, right? I, I'm a little schizophrenic. Now you're really scared, right? But there's many times this conflicting message of, of God's word, of life that's beyond under the sun with eternity in view and Jesus being living water. But then there's this message of the lust of the eyes and the lust of the world and the pride of life. So if we can take this to heart and remember, man, my eyes never going to be satisfied. My ears never going to be satisfied. Real satisfaction is found in my relationship with Christ. Verse 9. That which has been is what will be. That which is done, that which is done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which it may be said, this is new. It has already been in ancient times before us. Endless cycle of sameness. There is nothing new under the sun. And some would argue and say, well, we have all this new technology. This, this is something that Solomon didn't have. And the car came onto the scene. And the internet came onto the scene. The TV, all, the, all these things. And yes, there's new inventions. But is there really any new behavior under the sun? Has the internet changed our behavior, right? Has all this access to information and knowledge made us better people? Do you see people loving each other more, right? So there's nothing new under the sun. It's, it's the same thing over and over again. And a lot of times people are trying to find meaning in creating something new. And in reality, there's nothing new. 
In verse 11, there's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of things that are to come. There's no remembrance of former things. How many of you, show of hands, had the privilege of knowing a great-grandparent? Great-grandparent? Okay, let's look around at hands. Maybe 20% of you, 25% knew a a great-grandparent. 75% of us never knew a a great-grandparent. So let's think this through from a generational uh, perspective if God allows you to have kids and, and grandkids. For sure, your grandkids will remember you. Maybe your great grandkids, if you're fortunate, but you're not going to go beyond that at all. How many of you remember who won the Super Bowl two years ago? Show of hands. All right, we're down to about 3% of us that remember who. Uh, how many of you don't care who won the Super Bowl two years ago? There we go. We don't remember former things, do we? And so as we look at this, we start to go, what, what's really going to last? If I'm laboring and I'm, I'm trying to be so effective in, in my job and I, I want people to remember me, if that's my motivation, well, the truth of Scripture is they're not going to remember you. There's a poem by C.T. Studd. That's a great last name right there. And he points to, it's only in Christ things last. Let me read a couple stanzas to you. Two little lines I heard one day traveling along life's busy way bringing conviction to my heart and from my mind would not depart. Only one life twill soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life. Yes, only one. Soon with its fleeting hours be done. Then in that day, my Lord to me and stand before his judgment seat. Only one life twill soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And the poem goes on for there. But what you do in Christ lasts, doesn't it? Let's say you're working and you're doing your best in your job, being effective, but you're also doing it from a kingdom perspective to love people and impact them with the gospel. That's going to last. Someone's introduced to Jesus. They may not remember us specifically. That's that's not the point, but they've been introduced to Jesus and that's going to have lasting impact in their hearts and their lives. It's Christ that's remembered. It's Christ that has that eternal impact. Verse 12, I the preacher was king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I set my heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all that's done under heaven. This is a burdensome task God has given to the sons of men by which they may be exercised. So Solomon is trying to find meaning and watching this continual cycle that, that takes place and work that's never ending, he says, I'm going to study life under the sun, and I'm going to try to find wisdom. I'm going to find, find, find answers. And he said it was very grievousome to him. It was, it was burdensome to him to, to do this. Maybe at particular junctures of, of your life, you've said, I really need wisdom in, in this area. I'm going to try to have some financial wisdom. I'm going to try to have some relational wisdom. I I need to figure this out. And you begin to study things under the sun. And that can be a valuable exercise to do, but it's also really burdensome, isn't it? You get really wore out trying to come up with the right answers. In verse 14, I've seen all the works that are done under the sun, and indeed all is vanity and grasping for the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be numbered. So he's looking to wisdom and he's looking to work. 
If I can have the right answer and if I can do the right thing, then I'm going to have meaning. But what does he describe here? It's the grasping for wind. And we'll find that phrase over and over in Ecclesiastes. And it's very descriptive. Can you catch the wind? I've got it. I've finally got my hands around the the right answer. I, I finally got the wisdom that I need. Nope. It wasn't, it wasn't the right answer. I'm working, working, working. I, I finally got the house to where it needs to be. The hot water heater goes out. The, the, the furnace goes out. And that's what's expressed here in verse 15 is, is here I'm working, here I'm trying to find wisdom, but then something happens to wreck my system of wisdom. Something happens to, to wreck my system of work and I'm left just trying to, to grasp for, for the wind. In verse 16, I communed with my heart. Solomon's getting autobiographical and personal, saying, look, I have attained greatness, and I've gained more wisdom than all who were before me in Jerusalem. So he has position. He's the king, and he's a great king, and and he has wisdom. People are coming to him to hear his wisdom. My heart has understood great wisdom and knowledge. I set my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly, I perceive that this also is grasping for the wind. Was Solomon's wisdom enough in and of itself? It wasn't. He knew the right answers, but he didn't follow his own advice. And isn't that the problem with our sinful flesh? Maybe you put the time into gaining the wisdom and saying, okay, I understand what I need to do, but I, but I didn't do it, All right? I have the wisdom to know that the gas light is on in my car, but I'm too foolish to go to the gas station and I run out of gas, right? And that's why we need Jesus. That's why we need a savior because we don't follow the wisdom that we know. In verse 18, for in much wisdom is much grief and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Guys, this is another lie of our day and age. That wisdom and work can satisfy. And apart from Christ, work and wisdom leaves us chasing the wind. We have adopted into the idol of academics. Just like we've adopted into the idol of romance. And we've said, you know, if you can get this college degree, if you have your bachelor's degree, your your master's degree, your, your PhD, then you are going to be satisfied. And that's going to fulfill the longing of your soul. Now, is there anything wrong with education? Absolutely not. Can it be the right thing to go and pursue an education? A- absolutely. But people with bachelor's degrees and master's degrees and PhDs, are they more satisfied in life necessarily? Do you find them more fulfilled? Do you find less divorce in those that have master's degrees? It has nothing to do with it, right? It has nothing to do with your education. Whether you've got a high school degree, you never graduated high school, you've got a a college degree, that, that doesn't determine your satisfaction. What determines your satisfaction? It's your relationship with Christ. But we're giving this message that education can satisfy. Uh, Spend some time at a college campus. How's education doing at bringing satisfaction, right? 
It's a good thing. It has its proper place, but it's a terrible savior. It's a terrible Messiah. It it can't fulfill. It's not going to answer all of the questions in your life. And here Solomon, he says, wisdom is much grief. You know, the more I knew, the more grief that it, it caused in my life. As knowledge increased, it increased sorrow. I began to see my own failure and the failures of others around me. And thankfully, we don't have to look to wisdom. We don't have to look to work to be our ultimate satisfaction. And once we know that our satisfaction is in Christ, then I think we can appropriately enjoy work. We can appropriately enjoy education because we're not looking to it to satisfy us. So where do we go from here? Life stinks. It's all meaningless. Have a great day. Right? No, there's a tremendous application, and it's for us to not seek fulfillment in what we see, hear, do, or learn. To turn from an endless pursuit to a meaningful pursuit of Christ. And thankfully, Christ is in an endless pursuit of relationship with us. Hear the words of Jesus. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus came and died for our sins and rose again to provide forgiveness, but also to provide fulfillment in the longing of our hearts. He's the bread to our soul. He's the the bread of life. And I suggest to you this morning, if you're not feasting off of Jesus as your bread of life, you're not going to enjoy any other loaf in life. Because he is the substance. He's the satisfaction. He's what you're longing for and what you're looking for. John 7, verses 37 and 38 says, On the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart flows living water. If you're thirsty, come to me and drink. What's amazing about these promises that Jesus gives is it's not based upon your works. It's not based upon your performance. It's based upon who Jesus is, of coming to him and spending time with him, believing in him, and then he just pours out living water into our hearts and lives. And we can't help but then disperse this out onto others. It's the splash effect. And we become a fountain of, of living waters. I was thinking about this, you know, if you had a nice refreshment here, I was even thinking about getting a nice organic smoothie and just having it sit here for the whole message, right? It's one thing that, to have it there, and it's another thing to actually drink it, to, to enjoy it. And I think a lot of us, we know this up here, We know that Jesus is the living water. We know that he's the bread of life. And we even tell other people about it. Like, hey, you're on an endless pursuit. And that job, that relationship, fill in the blank, it can't satisfy. You need to experience Jesus. But yet, how long has it been since we've come to Jesus saying, I'm thirsty and I'm empty and I need to be filled up by you? Solomon is not an unbeliever. He's not someone who's absent of relationship with God. He's a believer. 
And he's probably the wisest believer at the time. And yet he gets distracted and he gets off course and he finds himself in a place where he's feeling extremely empty. If it can happen to Solomon, it happens to us as well, doesn't it? If we're honest, it happens to us as well. So may we learn, come to Jesus. Jesus said, I came to give you life and to give it to you more abundantly. So let's stand and pray and come to Jesus afresh this morning. Jesus, thank you that you allow us to experience emptiness apart from you. Thank you that you have made us and designed us for for greater things than just the things of this world for a relationship with you. We don't want to simply study these things, but we want to make it practical and experience coming to you afresh this morning. Jesus, we are thirsty. We are tired. We are overwhelmed. And we come to you. And we want to believe in you, that you are the bread of life and you're the living water. For each of us personally, would you meet us this morning? For those that haven't yet trusted you for salvation, we pray that this morning would be the morning of salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.